If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the new podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. I'm Kev Lochin and I'm joined in the studio today by BBC Sky at Night magazine news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Hello. And editor assistant Ian Todd. Hello. Doing all right? Yeah. Yeah, Doing well. Good. What about you, Kev? (laughs) I am excited for a new podcast, which is either going to go brilliantly or terribly, terribly wrong. So, (laughs) coming up, uh, we've got a few things in the show. Ian, you're talking to um, Ben Miller of Armstrong and Miller fame. Exactly. But not about comedy. No. um, Ben Miller basically left his uh, physics PhD to pursue comedy and obviously is now the comedian and actor we know today. And since his kind of success, um, he has gone back to to writing books. This is his second one. um, And it's called um, The Aliens Are Coming and it's about the the search for extraterrestrial life. Excellent. We'll get on to that bit later. I'm going to hear from Pete Lawrence as well, who's going to be telling us what you should be looking at in the night sky this month. But first, we better get on and talk about what's been happening since we've been away. Um, biggest news story, what do you reckon? Um, I would say probably Tim Peake controlling the uh, rover from the ISS. Yes, you went to see him do that, didn't you? Yes, I did. It was really, <laughs> it was quite interesting. Um, it, we went to, in the middle of Stevenage, there was a big warehouse Um run by Airbus, which they'd mocked up to look as much like Mars as possible. The warehouse? The Yeah, well, they had a, a big kind of sand pit in it. Oh, right, not, um, not like the outside the no, warehouse no, no, no. on it. So they had like a big sand pit that was, was apparently they tried really hard to make it as colour accurate to Mars as possible. Because right. what they were trying to test um, was how well you could use a rover's cameras to navigate around this, this Martian terrain. So basically what happened is um, Tim Peake dialed down from the International Space Station. What, on international dial-up modem kind <laughs> no, of No, via, via their, their sort of internet connection that they have up from the ISS to ground. Um, and so he, he assumed control of this, this rover, which was called Bridget, which was it, was, it was actually quite cute. It looked a little bit like Wally, had these big, like, long neck with a thing on the top that... The cameras and the lights, they kind of looked like eyes. Right. So it was very sort of anthropomorphic. And so he assumed control, and he, he'd never seen the Mars Yard before. He'd never piloted this thing before. It was all completely new to him. Wow. And so he had to drive the rover 
into a cave, in inverted commas, which was actually just a, a darkened bit of the, the Mars yard. And he had to, to do a sort of Easter egg hunt type thing. So there were X's painted on rocks, yeah. and some of them glowed in infrared, and some of them didn't. And so he had to use infrared cameras to try, I'm sorry, not infrared, ultraviolet. Mm. So he had to use ultraviolet cameras to find these these X's and, and come out um, within two hours. So did he find the X's? He did. He needed to find three, and he actually found all five. In fact, he found six, because he found one twice. <laughs> <laughs> so the rover doesn't have a map on it then? It no, the no, he had no map or anything. We could see what was going on. Um, yeah. It was quite weird because there was two rooms. There was one where you could hear what was going on and like ground control talking to Tim and him yeah. talking back down. And you could go out into the Mars yard and see what was going on. But there wasn't the ability to do both at the same time. <laughs> so right. that was quite quite an odd experience. But yeah, we, we could see like the feed that basically what, what Tim was seeing. And it was not a very good feed, did but it, he seemed to be doing did, okay. Did it look uh, kind of like an analogue? So when you, what you were looking at in real life, did it kind of match what he was able to see? Um, it was a lot lower quality what he could see, obviously. Yeah. Um, and it was very, you know, it was a much smaller field of view. And the thing that was really awkward is there was no real depth perception, which actually became a bit of a problem. They thought it might all go horribly wrong okay. about half an hour from the end because there was this one big boulder that they plonked in the middle of the room, I think on purpose. When you say a boulder, like, I imagine boulder is it, kind of like the size of, say, so a, it was, a room. It it's a big thing. Probably it's probably about like a... half as big as the rover, so it's probably okay. only about like a, a foot, foot and a half yeah, high. Okay. But, you know, it was big enough that it was going to cause the rover problems. Mm. And it started going up on it, and then it stopped. And there was this sort of very kind of like human moment where you could just sort of, like it almost looked like the rover was going, but I don't like it up here, it's too high. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently that's what actually happened. And the fail-safes on the robot kicked in and it refused to go up anymore. Oh, cool. um, I didn't realise they had those fail-safes. Yes, no, they do, because uh, obviously he can't see as well. Mm. And there are some things that, that robots are better at working out. And, you know, I am not in a safe position is much easier for the robot to work out than Tim with yeah. his tiny little screens. Yeah, how many kilometres above the Earth, exactly. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, what I want to know is, every time he found an X, did he kind of get a reward in space? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think there, w there was very much, a, so when I nipped back into the room, there was a kind of, he's being very professional about it, mm. but there was a lot of other people who were just like, no, he needs to find them all. I know he only oh, needs right. to find three, but it's like, no, this is this is... It was kind of like a game for him, um, and it got a bit competitive. <laughs> did, you get, did you get a feeling that, like, while you're there, did they talk about what they're going to do next after they've done this test? Because it was a success. Yes. So the idea was is for future missions to Mars to harmonise the, the relationship between humans and robots a lot more. Because at the moment, they're quite disparate the way that they work. It's either right. all automatic robotics or it's all people. Um, and the idea is that eventually we'll be able to send people into orbit around the moon or around Mars, um, and they'll be able to control the robots from orbit. So they don't have to do the dangerous bit of going down there mm -hmm. and potentially not being able to get back. The robots can do that bit. Um, and instead, but you've got the human brain operating them, and they can cope with things like saying, saying oh, that looks like an interesting rock. I'm going to go over there. And presumably they can make decisions a lot quicker. Like the, um, 
the distance, distance, the time for radio signals to get back and forth to Mars of Curiosity is something, was, was it six minutes? Uh, it like depends that? where it is in its orbit, yeah. Um, but at its closest, I think it's about eight minutes is the return time, I think. Right. Um, four minutes there, four minutes back. And obviously, if it's, you know, at the most distant part of its orbit, it can be like half an hour. There was another suggestion, you know, that for controlling a rover on Mars, you could do it from Phobos, essentially the kind of the Tim Peak mm. in ISS to Earth analog, get an astronaut on Phobos and then control a rover from there because I thought that Phobos, I think, might have been a bit easier to land on. It's Generally, it's not with the landing, it's the taking back off again. Because um, on the moon, you don't really need much oomph to get back off. That's why they could have, like... It takes a massive rocket to launch sure. the space from Earth, but like a tiny little thing when they were on the moon. Um, and Mars, it's got less gravity than the Earth. I want to say it's about a third, but I can't remember the exact number. But it's still, that is a lot. You're going to yeah. need to be able to produce jet fuel in situ to be able to get back off of Mars again, which is tricky. Very tricky. Yeah. But there must also be kind of Earth, Earth-based... Um you know, reasons to use this technology. I'm assuming there's kind of things like bomb diffusing and things yes, like that. Yes, there's, yeah, exactly. Things like bomb diffusing. The ones that gets mentioned quite a lot is deep sea exploration and mm. doing things in areas with high radiation levels, such as Fukushima reactor and stuff like that. Yes, um, absolutely. Though, of course, with that, you also have to, you know, make it so it doesn't get irradiated within 15 seconds, which is what happens at the moment. <laughs> One of the things I also noticed, because... You, as you were um, live tweeting, tweeting it from our um, from our Twitter account and kind of putting videos and stuff, and you kind of noticed just just how slow the rover is. I mean, is, is that is is that slow slowness necessary, or is there? It was. Oh, they did tell me it's top speed, and I can't remember now. But it was purposefully going quite slowly because they didn't know what the terrain was like. He couldn't really see very far ahead. He had no depth perception. Um, it could get up a much higher speed. I say much, like. We're still talking, you know, like a foot per second. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it took quite a long time to turn as well. That was the thing. Sort of when he was first getting used to it, Tim basically drove it forward for a bit and then just turned on the spot a couple of times. It was like it was doing a little pirouette before driving <laughs> off into the cave. We don't really want to talk about it. Is this the rover? Was it, is it kind of a mock-up of what ExoMars is going to be, or is it something more like Curiosity? It's, this one, it was very much, it was designed to test the, the camera capabilities of right. it. So in terms of its um, kind of drive systems, they mm. weren't very similar to what's going to be on, on ExoMars Part 2 if it flies. And because they, they'd mocked up the art to look to look like Mars rather than to have the consistency yeah. of Mars. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it was a lot sandier and, and things like that. Um, and of, uh, the, the weights were completely off as well. Um, but it probably is going to be something similar, um, the rover, if uh, with ExoMars Part 2. If. Yes, in 2020 now, not 2018. Oh, really? Yeah, it got delayed. Oh, I know that. Okay, so we can only wait and hope for that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, before we move on, I want to try something a bit different for the rest of the news. Um, so, you both have pads in front of you, right? I do, and I yes. you both open. So, we're going to try kind of news bingo. So, um, I'm going to get into the contest, because you both write news for Sky, so yes. we're going to see how much of it you remember. Oh, okay. um, so, I'm going I'm to kind of uh, ask you a couple of things about um, what's been going on, and we're going to see who, uh, who does the best, shall we? 
Okay. Goodness. Okay. Goodness. <laughs> Bye, Jingo. Right. So I have an easy one. Why is everyone so excited about Kepler at the moment? Because... No, no, you have to, you have to write it down. It's not, it's not going to be a quiz, but you have to write it down, then we'll talk about it, because otherwise, there's going to be no way of keeping track of... Okay. okay. No worries. Yeah, no, just because I'd never actually played... Um, News bingo. This before. actually isn't how bingo works. Not that you realise that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, okay. Okay. So, what do you think? What I think, I I think that Kepler discovered more planets than they thought it would. It, there was a big dump of a. Think it was about twelve hundred. Yes, yeah, basically right, Ian. Yeah, I think it it it's, it, it has verified twelve over, just over twelve hundred of the planets that it, exoplanets it has discovered, five hundred and fifty of which could be rocky like Earth, and nine of which could potentially have life. Do you like have the press release on? <laughs> no, I just uh, you're absolutely right. Of course, it's like it's super planet hall. It's yeah. done. It's found more. Than uh, well, it's a large announcement of exoplanets ever. It's half of all the planets Kepler's ever found, and you're quite right. 550, I think, they're in the habitable end of stars, and a few could be um, rocky, but still, none of them are a true Earth analog yet. So yeah. that's still a big thing. But I, I quite like this. When this story was added to the uh, the Kepler Exoplanet Archive website, which is where they kind of do keep the accounts from all sources, um, they said, "Oh, we you know we found 1,200." and 84 planets, in brackets, not a typo. <laughs> we have to make absolutely sure. It's like, no. Do you know how they did it? How they suddenly come up with uh, verifying so many planets so quickly? Wasn't it like, it was like a probability thing? Like it had to, each candidate had to pass this 99% probability? Absolutely, yes, yeah. Because yeah. normally, normally, before, they were verifying them based on kind of ground-based observations. So you kind of look at it a few times, and if it's, you know, the dips today, you say, okay, that's definite dip, that's probably a planet. Now this analysis, it, as you say, analyzes how likely it is that a brightness dip of a star is caused by a planet in 99% pass rate it, it, it is yeah hmm. but there was a few there was something like 420 460 something like that they were false positives as well mm. so it's doing exactly the opposite and uh, cutting yeah. them out I, I, I kind of thought that that story was nicely timed because it was either just after or just before the Mercury transit so yeah. we'd kind of seen what a what a transit looks like and then we kind of learn how transits can be used to discover planets it's I, kind of nice. I don't suppose you know how much of the sun's light Mercury's transit blocks no. I do want because it's so tiny. It was like one one hundred and fiftieth. That was like the size of Mercury comparison. Like that was high high Mercury would appear diameter rather yeah, across than, the sun rather than surface area. Because yeah. I wonder whether so you'd be... actually be able to see a planet the size of Mercury. Because a lot of the ones we find uh, hot Jupiters being yeah. uh, by name because they're. Big like it, Jupiter. Yeah, it generally it needs to be quite big and quite close because then it blocks out more a, a, a larger percentage of the planets uh, of the sun's light. All right, let's move on to the next one. Okay. Um, so, astronomers, you know, astronomers have discovered a moon around the Kuiper Belt dwarf planet Makemake, right? Yes. Why has it surprised them? I didn't say it was going to be easy. <laughs> I know um, you both right that it is. I wasn't going to say, oh. Um, What's happened around Mako Mako? Oh no, that's 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 the other one. Uh, yeah. Um, why did it surprise them? Um, any ideas? Was it because was it because they'd previously like falsely verified that it wasn't a moon or something? No, uh, no, not no. quite. 
There was one that was the... I think it was a different Kuiper object. They realised that it was a lot of a tighter orbit than they thought it was. But I have a feeling that was Haumea, not Makemake. No, Makemake, the surprising thing was they hadn't found it sooner. Ah. Because there have been several searches for this moon uh, going back over decades. So they kind of assumed there would be a moon, but they thought it would be a moon phaeton, a moon fainter, a moon that is fainter than anything that was possessed by Pluto. Now, bear in mind that Pluto's moons are 100,000 times fainter than Pluto is itself. And, you know, I, mean, I realize this is a relative brightness thing, but the difference between uh, the brightness of Pluto and Makemake is only about three magnitudes. Mm-hmm. The moon they found, which doesn't have a name yet, um, is only 1,300 times fainter than Makemake itself. So they mm-hmm. were kind of shocked. It's like, where has this moon come from? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that its orbit is edge on. So all these times, ah. it is just lost in the glare of the planet. So you only sort of see it when it's at one extreme end or the other. Exactly, ah. yeah. It's like, it seems to be a bit like, and this is my kind of paraphrasing, not theirs, it's like you're trying to catch a comet in the solar system. It's only going to be there a tiny amount of time. Yeah. Cool. Right. You're both level pegging in a moment, which is kind of good. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure who's <laughs> what, what I actually expected. Well, how many um, are left? Two more. Okay. okay. I should have done an odd number, really, yeah. but yeah. we'll think about that for next time. So, um, February. Scientists announced the first detection of gravitational waves. So most scientists attribute this to a merger of a pair of big black holes. What's the alternative solution that caused the gravitational waves? Mm. Go. Um, I think I read somewhere that they think it might have been caused by neutron stars rather than black oh, holes. Oh, you're so close. <laughs> hey, do you know? No, uh, my my guess was um, so I had something to do with dark matter. It was a it was a headline I, I'd read earlier on. So I okay, kinda... actually, you're also quite. I wondered if you might have known this because you wrote an article a while ago about hypothetical stars. Yes. and this kind of is one. It's a gravitational vacuum star. Cool. Are you what now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gravistar. Okay. For a, a, bit of a, a bit of a nicer name. But um, it's supposed to be a dense ball of matter that's kept inflated by a core of dark energy. Now, I don't know if that helps you visualise it. It doesn't help me visualise it at all. But um, obviously it's never been seen. But scientists say that basically all the evidence that um, supports the existence of black holes could also support a Gravistar. Um, interesting is because... The kind of the key difference seems to be a gravistar doesn't have a single event horizon. Mm-hmm. So what you get instead of the black hole, you get a light ring circling the gravistar. Um, but I kind of thought like they're saying, oh no, gravitational waves they definitely exist, and they, they kind of assume they might be wrong with gravistars. But even one of the guys who is um, part of the LIGO team is uh, it's BS Sophia Prakash of Cardiff University. He says that their signal is consistent with both the formation of a black hole and horizonless object. They just can't tell. Mm. Hmm. Hey, Yvonne, is this trickier than you thought it would be? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so we're going to end on an and finally kind of one. Um, so, uh, Large Hadron Collider, uh, the great big atom smasher beneath the Franco-Swiss border, was due to start up in spring after some maintenance work, but it was delayed. Why? This one indicated. Uh, I think I, I think I, I think I only knew this because I remember you telling me about it. Well, in that case, Ian, tell us what you think. I, I, I could be getting this wrong, obviously, but I, was it something to do with like birds? Was it birds nesting somewhere they shouldn't have been? No, not quite. 
It was a small weasel-like rodent chewed through a power cable or something. Basically, yes. And they they did not find much left of the small weasel-like <laughs> rodent animal. I think what I think, what you, I think what you, the way you put it is the unfortunate animal did not survive its encounter with <laughs> what was it a sixty-six kilovolt transformer. <laughs> Yeah, it was a weasel. It was a beach mine, which is a weasel. I uh, got yes. in and, uh, you know, had a little snack. Uh, it turned out not to be edible. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, there's there's loads of really weird things that have stopped the LHC. Beer bottles. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it, there was a baguette at some point. So that's, that's the bird thing that you're yeah. thinking of. It was a bird dropped a baguette. <laughs> <laughs> and you think seagulls are bad. Dropped a baguette uh, onto a power line. Which, the, the result of that is it caused a uh, failure in the cooling system. Mm. Genuinely dropped a baguette? I thought you were I thought you were just adding all the ridiculous scenarios together to make one... No, no, no. 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 That genuinely happened? Genuinely happened. I think... I can't remember if that was an incident or there was another one, but there is a famous thing where in the logbook of the LHC somewhere it says, oh, expletive, there's been a big, big bang. Which, this was at the time when there was lots of things in the papers saying the LHC is going to kill us all, it's going to create a black hole and destroy the universe. So is that right when it started up? Right when it started. Uh, yeah, when it restarted um, back in 2000 and something, um, when it was the LHC rather than the thing that came before. Um, and so then a lot of people picked up on the fact that they said, oh, there's been a big bang, we're all going to die. And it's like, no, 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 no. There was just literally... A big bang. <laughs> Do you know how the users of Reddit reacted to the start? But yeah, actually, in all those rumours, they were going to uh, create a black hole underneath. No, I don't you know, know the story. They sent the LHC a red crowbar. A red crowbar? Yes. <laughs> is that a Half-Life reference? Yes, absolutely <laughs> is. Uh, okay. um, there was actually a chap, but it also did rounds... Uh, but when it started, there was a chap at LHC who looked remarkably like Gordon Freeman, who is the eponymous hero of Half-Life. There's it's not eponymous, he's just the hero. Always a physicist who looks remarkably like Gordon Freeman. And if there's not, one will become to look like Gordon Freeman. <laughs> we'll leave that there. Um, as you've kind of won bingo, two to one. Hey. Unfortunately, there isn't a trophy. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll oh. get one for next. Uh, I know. I'm sure we won't keep track as time goes on. Oh, actually, no, I'm going <laughs> to get, get horribly competitive. I'm going to uh, make a board behind you. I'll, <laughs> I'll make a board. I'll put a photo of it online on our Twitter. Okay, great. Um, right, so we should move on to my thing. So um, next up, we're going to hear from Pete Lawrence, who's going to tell us what you should be looking at in the sky this month. Observing the night sky in June and July can be quite challenging because the sky never really gets properly dark. But there is one phenomenon which appears at this time of year which I really love going out and trying to see, and that's the phenomenon of noctilucent or night-shining clouds. Now, it may sound like I've lost the plot here and I'm moving into the realms of meteorology, but noctilucent clouds do have a link with astronomy. They're the highest clouds on the planet. They occur in a very thin layer in an atmospheric layer called the mesosphere, uh, in a, a thin layer which is 76 to 85 kilometers up. Now, at that height, when the sun is below the horizon for us in the UK, when we're standing on the ground, if you happen to be up at that height, looking back towards the sun, the sun would actually appear above the horizon. 
So if any clouds form in that layer, they're able to reflect sunlight. So when you're standing on the, on the ground in the dark, or as dark as it gets anyway, you can sometimes see these clouds reflecting the sunlight. So they appear to shine at night, which is why they're called noctilucent clouds. Now, the astronomical link here is that the supercooled water vapor, which is in that layer, needs something to nucleate around. It needs to form little tiny ice crystals. And those particles which cause that to happen are believed to be the fragments left behind when meteors vaporize in the Earth's atmosphere. So that's why it's linked to astronomy. Now, if they do appear at all, you can typically see them 90 to 120 minutes after sunset, low down, very close to the northwestern horizon. Now, bear in mind, when I say low down, they can be very low down indeed. So if you've got anything in the way there, like buildings or trees, noctilucent clouds are very good at hiding behind those features. So make sure you get a nice, clear view in that direction. The other time to typically see them is similar time, 90 to 120 minutes before sunrise, but this time low down in close to the northeastern horizon. So basically, that's where the sun would be below the horizon. So you're seeing the reflected sunlight directly there. But if you get a really good display of noctilucent clouds, they can be pretty spectacular. And what can happen then is that you get a noctilucent cloud display low down close to the northwestern horizon, but as the sun tracks below the northern horizon, so the cloud display moves along with it. It moves round to the north and then ends in the northeast. The beauty of noctilucent clouds is you don't really need anything special to view them, just your eyes. If you've got a camera, you can set your camera up on a tripod and take some photographs of them. And if you get a bright display, even a smartphone camera can pick them up. So you thought you were going to have a good rest throughout the summer period with a very short period of night sky. That's gone out of the window now. You now need to go out and hunt for these elusive clouds. Good luck. Well, up next, I'm speaking to Ben Miller about his new book, The Aliens Are Coming. We get sent in quite a lot of books into the, the Sky Night magazine desk. And when this one came in, we, we kind of thought we should probably speak to uh, Ben Miller about it because, as I said at the start of the podcast, he was basically doing his PhD in physics at Cambridge when he got into comedy and then became an actor and um, a kind of well-known comedian on TV. But now he's, he's returned to, to science and this book is looking at extraterrestrial life. Um, so... We spoke to him about it, and um, it's really, really interesting hearing hearing his point, points of view uh, on the subject and how it kind of all comes from uh, a love of the notion of aliens when he was a child and how um, writing the book also made him rethink the notion of biology and, and the notion of life and what life actually is. Ben, thanks very much for, for joining me and talking to me. Well, thank you for having me. Hello. <laughs> I suppose the first question I should ask is, uh, are, are the aliens indeed coming? No. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> that's, um, that is uh, a question that I do try and answer in the book. I think um, I would have to say there are some very exciting prospects on the horizon. So I think probably the most exciting thing is looking at nearby, um, nearby planets of sun-like stars uh, over the next 10 years and being able to um, look at the uh, look at those planets in the infrared and see whether they have atmospheres that might indicate they have life. 
So basically, that might be the, that might, our first brush with life will will probably be in the form of um, you know the uh, the image from an infrared telescope. <laughs> so it's maybe not what people are expecting in terms of uh, a handshake with a a grey alien on the White House lawn, but. Um, there's a great argument to say that we're also getting a little bit warmer in the search for uh, in extraterrestrial intelligent alien life as well. Yes, uh, indeed. I mean, it's, it's it's not really that long since since we kind of started discovering exoplanets and things. So we're really only at the kind of beginning of of, of properly looking for extraterrestrial life, and and yet it it seems that we are well, obviously, closer than we've ever been. Well, exactly. I mean, the thing is, the speed of the search uh, is increasing at, at an extraordinary rate, you know. So, um, uh, you know, Frank Drake, who began searching for radio signals, for example, um, in the uh, 1960s, um, you know, managed to search as a handful of stars. Now we are, we're aiming to search the nearest million stars within the next 10 years so we're we're starting only now only now just beginning to sample enough of the galaxy to get some kind of answer as to whether there is any other uh technologically similar intelligent alien life out there you know yeah and when people kind of think of the notion of of alien life i, I suppose pe- people kind of think of um as, as you said you know little gray men or, or aliens that we've that we've seen in sci-fi but i suppose if, if if we do find life it's it's probably quite likely to be something quite different isn't it it's it's, it's not likely to be um you know a, a creature with with four limbs and and a head <laughs> that's right yes in um in sci-fi you are of course limited uh the casting pool is is all of uh, is purely Homo sapiens, so <laughs> <laughs> everything has to resemble us to some extent. Uh, interestingly, there's a lot of really good arguments, um, and one of the things I, you know, the book is really an excuse to go into all sorts of fascinating science about life, and one of the really interesting things about evolution, of course, is that it not only produces different species, but it also quite often finds the same solutions to the same problems. You know, so say, for example, limbs and eyes and teeth and scales crop up um, on all branches, um, on on all branches of the sort of animal family tree. Uh, So we can also kind of expect that, it might not look exactly human, but that uh, aliens also might have eyes and ears and all the other kind of um, all the other kind of uh, traits that we find on Earth life, just not necessarily in the same order. That is a primary concern of the book as well, isn't it? It's, it's this. It's also tackling the notion of life and uh, where it all began and how it all began. Well, yeah. One of the things I really like. I wrote a book before this called uh, "It's Not Rocket Science," which was basically a kind of um, bird's eye view of my sort of favorite bits of science but one bit I had to leave out was entropy and it's been something that I've loved as you know a, a subject that I've uh, long loved since I started studying science and this 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 book is also really one of the themes in it is it's about an understanding of entropy and um, and how life speeds the uh, 
the increase of entropy in the universe. Uh, because at first glance, life seems to be doing something quite different. It seems to be going against the grain. Uh, it seems to be becoming more organized um, and uh, more complex, where the natural tendency of things is to, you know, run down and become more random and disorganized. So at first glance, life seems to be doing something very unusual, and it's only when you start digging into entropy that you start to really get a glimpse of what's actually going on. Hmm. But the, the, the interesting thing about uh, your uh, previous book, It's Not Rocket Science, was it, it was kind of about, uh, it was kind of um, predicated upon making science accessible for the uh, general public. But with uh, a, a subject like um, extraterrestrial life, was it easy to keep the science, you know, um, so that people who aren't necessarily scientifically minded would be, would be able to enjoy the book? Well, that is my aim. You know, I mean, uh, uh, unlike a lot of popular science, I am actually aiming at somebody who who's bright but doesn't actually have any formal scientific training. So, I mean, I do, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very much in, intending that the book is accessible to, to non-scientists. What's, what's different between this and the first book is the, the first book is really about what we know, and this, this book is more about what we don't know. So what are we actually doing uh, as, as a species uh, in order to, to try and find life on other planets? What's the uh, current state of the, of the hunt? Well, it's a little bit disappointing in terms of robotic missions to planets in our own solar system. Because, of course, one of the things we haven't talked about so far is, you know, yes, our telescopes might pick up, um, might be able to image the atmospheres of nearby planets and figure out whether there's chemical imbalance there and whether there might therefore be life. Uh, our radio telescopes and um, are sort of scouring the skies looking for radio signals. But there's another, um, you know, very exciting area, which is other planets within our own solar system. And uh, the ones that people tend to get excited about are the kind of uh, icy moons of, of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, and also... Another of the um, satellites of Saturn called Titan, which has got a kind of, is a really fascinating place because uh, whereas the Earth sits at the triple point of water, Saturn sits at the triple point of methane. <laughs> so there's a kind of interesting, uh, you know, an interesting line of argument that would say you could have a very different kind of life there, um, you know, exploiting methane the same ways that... Uh, that life on our planet exploits water. What um, made you want to tackle this subject? What kind of drew you towards this th this idea? I've always really been um, well. I've always really been fascinated by um, science fiction and aliens and the idea of UFOs and I find all that kind of stuff really interesting. Um, and when I was writing the uh, writing rocket science, some of the most fascinating new science I learned was biology. And I thought, well, you know, what can what can our, you know, state-of-the-art biology tell us about aliens. So it's a kind of a way of bringing together my two favourite, current favourite topics. And uh, your uh, foundation was in physics, wasn't it? As you were kind of getting into to comedy and acting, you, you were... Yeah. Yes, I did, um, I did a degree in uh, physics and I also did, began a PhD in physics um, and, uh, and sadly left to go and... Uh, to, for the free electric band, um, but yeah, um, I did sort of begin life as a as a physicist, and I think that's why. I think that's probably one of the reasons why 
the biology took me so much by surprise. You know, I kind of wasn't really prepared for some of the amazing um, advances that have made in biology since I last properly studied it. So, yeah, I mean, that was uh, some of the most fascinating scientists I met, actually, writing the book with biologists. Yeah, so uh, that, that must have been a surprise, you know, coming as, as a physicist. Well, yeah, because, you know, when I, you know, it's an awful long time ago that I studied biology, but when I did, it was a bit like, um, I mean, everyone used to make the joke, it was a bit like stamp collecting, you know, it was a bit kind of like just trying to categorize um, and to argue with other people's categories. But, uh, you know, biology is really a hard science now, sort of underpinned by mathematics and sort of in particular with the, um, you know, the biology of life and the origins of life is really um, underpinned by thermodynamics. So it's kind of, yeah, it's become a really, um, it's become a really technical subject and it's, and it's all the better for that, I think. Um, was astronomy something that you were, that you were always interested in? I was, yeah. I mean, I did, um, yeah, I've always, uh, yeah, I've always been interested in astronomy, um, uh, particularly in how, you know, in stellar physics and in and galaxy formation, those were two of the things that I. In fact, when I did my undergraduate degree, I specialised in um, the physics of stars and galaxies. Whereas when I, when I did my PhD, it was more sort of solid state physics. So um, I kind of went from one end of the spectrum to the other, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then that that obviously led you on to. Um kind of extraterrestrial life and, and looking to the stars for your new book? Well, I just think it, it's really, um, it's fascinating to try and answer those questions. You know, the big questions like, oh, what is life? How did life start? Is this the only life that exists in the universe? And if it isn't, what's the other life out there like? And I think the difference for me as a schoolboy growing up faking my UFO uh, Polaroid pictures <laughs> by dangling, uh, you know, um, by taking photos and, and using my fishing rod to sort of dangle uh, potatoes wrapped in tinfoil in front of them to make it look like they were hovering over buildings. Since we used to fake UFO um, photos uh, and make crop circles in my youth, um, we've actually come a long way to now sort of starting to answer some of those questions. And I think we're at a really tantalizing point where lots of different branches of science are starting to come together. Um, and, and probably one of the most important things of all is, you know, you, you they have laughed you out of town. Um, if you tried to write a book, if I tried to write this book, you know, even probably five years ago, um, it would have been just ridiculed. But things are moving so forward so fast that the um, to talk about the real science of extraterrestrials is something that, you know, people now kind of take seriously. It's amazing. <laughs> right, so we should probably talk about what's coming up in the next issue of BBC Sky Night magazine, which is the June issue. Mm -hmm. um, as you uh, interviewed a Helen Sharman for that one. I did, I did. It was on the 18th of May. It was the 25th anniversary since Helen Sharman uh, launched into space. And she, of course, was the first Briton to go into space. Yes, she was. She applied... Via, uh, she heard an advert on the radio that said "astronaut wanted, no experience required." Which we'd never get now, would we? I mean, can no, you imagine? I think, actually, I think there might have been something similar that Tim Peake applied for. Really? Yes. When they, they, I think they said uh, they're looking for the general for, public, yeah. like no experience, because Tim Peake is a. Mm. Uh, an Air Force pilot. Yes. Or, yeah. That, that's that's yeah. NASA uh, put out public 
things every couple of years. They sort of say, we're looking for new astronauts. I did not Give know it a that. go. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she applied. Uh, 13,000 other people also applied, but she managed to, to get through and be the one chosen to actually go into space. Now, this was part of something called Project Juno, which was actually a commercial venture. Uh, she was being sponsored to go. She was not paid by the UK government. Uh-huh. Um, so I interviewed her about her thoughts of what it was like to go into space, what it was like to be the first Britain, and, and also how the kind of uh, the British... Um, view of the space industry has changed in the last 25 years. And we can read all about that in the magazine? Yes, you can. Excellent. Also in this issue, uh, we're going to be telling you how you can see the ringed wonder Saturn for yourself for the first time through a telescope. You've never seen it before. Absolutely should. It's the astronomical object that people most say, wow, this is amazing. This is what gets people into astronomy. Uh, Also, the phone you have in your pocket is absolutely wonderful for taking photos of the night sky. You may not believe it, but Pete Lawrence is going to be telling us how you can capture some absolutely stunning shots without investing in any high-tech kit. Mm. And we're also going to be looking at how the seasons of Mars, because Mars has seasons, all the planets have seasons, um, but how the seasons of Mars change what we see on the surface of the red planet. Plus, we have our monthly sky guide and equipment reviews. Anything else, guys? Uh, well, just on the on the subject of gravitational waves, um, for this month's bonus content, I spoke to uh, Dr. David Wrightsey, who is the executive director of the LIGO experiment, kind of trying to break down the the tricky science and physics into something that we can, <laughs> us mere mortals, can can understand. Um, so yeah, um, I, I spoke to spoke to Dr. Wrightsey, uh, and that's available in the bonus content this month. And of course, we have all our brilliant regular features um, showing you the best things that you can see in space, some of our readers' best images, all of the latest news, and also catching up with Maggie Adderin-Pocock and John Corkshaw. Awesome. BBC Sky Night magazine is available in print and in several digital formats. You can find out more at skynightmagazine.com slash subscribe, or you can look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. So, this has been Radio Astronomy. We have been BBC Sky at Night magazine, and we'll be back in a month's time. <laughs>